After a year delay and mounting concern due to rising COVID cases, the Tokyo Olympics are upon us. Thousands of athletes, officials, and media are descending on the city, and while everyone is hoping for things to go smoothly, not everyone is happy about the games going ahead. I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3. Post-media national sports writer Scott Stinson, who is in Tokyo for the games, joins me to discuss the mood in the city, concern over rising cases and whether measures are enough to contain possible spread, and whether this whole situation makes bidding for an Olympics even less appealing. Don't forget you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, we're even on Amazon Music now. I'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. So Scott, we are on the eve of the opening ceremony for Tokyo 2020, even though it's happening a year late, or as we've said around the National Post, Tokyo 2020 Take 2. You're in Tokyo to cover the games for Post Media, and one of the things that I keep hearing about is this idea of the Olympic bubble. What was it like getting into Japan and the process that you've had to go through to get to where you are there at your hotel? It's a funny thing because I think we're used to the idea of sports bubbles as being very specific in terms of a location. Mm Mm-hmm. The bubble back when the NHL playoffs season and a half ago finished in Edmonton and Toronto, they were physically, everybody was like right there. You entered the bubble. You couldn't leave the bubble. You know, you could sort of imagine it as like an imaginary dome over the thing. In the case of the Olympics, because they're so big and there's so many different venues and it's spread out, not just around Tokyo, but in other locations in Japan, it's a bubble as more of a concept, I guess, <laughs> because it's just impossible to keep everybody contained. Yeah. So the idea is more like everyone will be tested before they enter the quote unquote bubble. And then they will be tested depending on their level of participation in the games at a certain level of frequency during their time in Tokyo or Japan. And they are not supposed to be interacting with anyone outside the bubble. So basically, you're only supposed to have contact with people who are also Olympic participants. And by participants, that includes athletes, coaches, staff, volunteers, media, Mm -hmm. anybody whose purpose for the next three weeks in Japan is doing something Olympic related. So those people are all in the bubble. We're not supposed to be interacting with anybody outside the bubble. And so instead of this like one singular location, you kind of think of it as this constantly moving amorphous thing where the bubble is changing shape and people are moving around within it but at the same time they're not really restricted in their movements in the way that previous bubbles have worked so the challenge is trying to ensure everybody who comes into it is covid free and then testing to make sure that they constantly are while they're in it so The intake process is pretty complicated. We had to have two negative COVID tests before we boarded the plane Mm -hmm. to come over here. And they had to be within one within 96 hours of your departure and one within 72 hours. So we did that. We then got on the plane and flew over, then had another test at the airport upon arrival and had to wait for a result from that one. You also had to wait for your entire plane to essentially be cleared from that point. So there was a period after we, you know, people were checking documentation and confirming that we had proof of negative results and we had filled out all the required forms. 
then you basically sat in a room for two and a half hours and waited for everyone to get through that same process in the airport. And then they came out and announced that our flight was good to go. So then we carried on our way, had a whole nother other series of like levels of checks to go through. It's a funny thing. You fly over to Tokyo, which depending on where you start in Canada for, for me, it was about a 13 hour flight. Then it was another six or so hours at the airport to get through all those levels of checks and then eventually get on to a hotel where I got late Monday night, Tokyo time, Monday morning back home. And that was my day zero of quarantine. And then I have three days uh, additionally before I'm supposed to be able to leave and continue on my duty. So I'm now on day two of quarantine and I have one more tomorrow and then we'll be out in time for the opening ceremonies if everything goes well. So it is a pretty complicated procedure with a lot of checks Mm -hmm. to enter the bubble. And then the hope is that once people are in it, the frequency of testing and whatnot that you're doing within it will prevent. Obviously, they can't prevent positive tests because they've already experienced some, but the hope is that they can identify them quickly and isolate those people and make sure that they don't have Olympic COVID outbreaks, which would obviously be a disaster. You're on day two of of your three-day quarantine. Mm -hmm. Does that mean you're confined to your room or other people coming into Tokyo? Like, are they stuck in their rooms or you just, you can't leave the building, but you can kind of go out and about in the building or hang out in the lobby and get a sense of things from there? It is a bit unclear exactly what is allowed with the hotel quarantine, which is not necessarily something I think they would like to admit. (laughs) So I'll answer that a couple of different ways. We think back home in Canada of hotel quarantine as this thing that they implemented where if you flew back into the country, you had to check into this hotel, you couldn't leave, they brought you food. It was a little hotel room prison for three days or or a day and a half or until whenever you got your negative test and then you could leave, right? Or of course, unless you just ignored it altogether, which as we know, lots of people did. Mm-hmm. But that idea of a hotel quarantine is not this hotel quarantine because they are not providing food. They are not really monitoring your movements within the hotel. You're sort of given free run of the place. You're allowed to order in food from delivery people. There is some uncertainty as to whether or not you're allowed to walk out the door and go away for 10 minutes to pick up takeout or go to a convenience store or something like that. I think, again, because they're sort of acknowledging that people might not have food in their rooms and they might not have stuff they need to subsist for three days. So there is a bit of uncertainty on that front. And I've asked around some other colleagues who are here and no one seems to know exactly what the rules are. (laughs) So that's a bit weird. And then beyond that, they also have said in their communications that even if you're serving your three-day hotel quarantine, you can be allowed out under certain circumstances if you're performing quote-unquote essential Olympic-related activities. Mm -hmm. So that's a thing that could be interpreted fairly broadly. I guess the idea is that if you come here and you have something you have to do, whether it's training or, you know, a pre-race briefing or something like that, then you don't necessarily have to be in your hotel room during that quarantine period. But that stuff was all supposed to be vetted ahead of time and you're supposed to have specific approval to do it. So myself and Wes Gilbertson, the other post-media reporter here, we didn't request any special dispensation to leave quarantine because we just wanted to 
make sure that we got approved and could get in the country yeah. and didn't want to complicate the process any more extensively. And, and frankly, I'm glad we did because the approvals were as last minute as they could possibly be. Like we literally didn't get our plan signed off on until the same day Wes was boarding an airplane from Calgary. So it's a weird sort of thing. You can certainly see how the it's a bubble, but it's a porous bubble. <laughs> there are definitely ways that it seems people can be out and about and potentially in contact with other people. I mean, there's definitely rules that they want you to follow, but the enforcement is kind of on the individual to make sure that they're adhering to the rules as far as I can tell. And that may not be true of every hotel, but it certainly appears to be true of the one we're staying in, where there's a nice old man near the door who is sitting next to a sign that says, please do not leave. (laughs) But I'm pretty sure I could stroll right by him. And I'm not trying to be facetious, but like he doesn't seem to have any way of knowing who in this hotel is part of the Olympic delegation and who is just a random person staying in this hotel. So how does he know who he's supposed to stop when they get to the door? Mm -hmm. And from my limited interactions down in the lobby, it doesn't necessarily know like he makes an effort to police the comings and goings of people. So Yeah. yeah, the bubble has some holes, I think. Normally, when you think of the Olympics, you have this kind of image of a host city and a host country kind of welcoming the world, doing so joyously. Mm -hmm. And in the lead up to these Olympic Games, the joyfulness hasn't necessarily been there, at least in reading reports coming from Tokyo. In interacting with officials as you've made your way around the airport and getting to the hotel and being in quarantine, and even through local media there, what is the mood like right now in Tokyo? Well, the reporting in local media would have you believe that the stories we've all heard are accurate and that (laughs) the public is strongly against these games. You know, 85, 87% of people would prefer they weren't happening these are the numbers we keep seeing fairly consistently. And there has been, you know, my Japanese is fairly limited, but I can tell you that there has been communication from officials here basically saying, hey, if you guys are out breaking quarantine, Japanese media is noticing it and they are reporting on it. And there is a sense that like, if I were to just decide tomorrow to walk into this hotel and go to downtown Tokyo and wander around, that there's a decent chance that some Japanese reporter would be writing about the foreign visitor who was clearly breaking quarantine and wanting to make an example of the fact that that we're all here not following the rules. So there is definitely this idea that they're just waiting to bust people for not following the rules as they've been laid down so they can point out that, see, this is a bad idea. And these people who we keep getting told have a really strict rules that they have to follow actually don't have to follow them and so on and so forth. So so there's that element of it. Mm-hmm. I will say that everybody I've interacted with through the, the airport and the people who come and collect your COVID test results from the hotel, they're all positive as can be. They seem very friendly and they're helpful to the extent that they can be. There's some language challenges there obviously, but, um, you know, there's a lot of people that seem very grateful to have us here and covering this and trying to make the best of it. So I don't think it's accurate that, you know, nobody is into this. And I suppose maybe it's understandable that people who volunteered for these roles and who are doing these jobs are putting a brave face on it. But having said that, I do think the sort of general sense that there is skepticism about the wisdom of these games and a fear that they're going to lead to major COVID problems in Tokyo as a whole, those concerns are valid. And I think those fears exist. And I think we'll have to see how it goes. 
as you mentioned off the top, as we inch closer to the games, the whole operation is being tested by positive COVID cases. And we're recording this late Tuesday in Canada and it's early Wednesday there in Tokyo. How many cases have we seen so far? And are these people who are coming to Tokyo with COVID and maybe they're not getting picked up by the testing they have to do before they leave? Or did they catch COVID while they're there? And if so, how big a concern is that? I don't think we can say with total confidence where the infections are occurring. Given the timing and the fact that people are all just arriving here, I think it's reasonable to assume that these were people who were positive before they boarded a plane to Tokyo and had their test discovered either on intake or shortly after their arrival. And as we all know, this far into the pandemic, you can test negative on a Monday, have inquired it on a Sunday, and then not test positive until Wednesday or Thursday. So proof of negative results before you departed wherever your home country is, is is not a guarantee that you won't eventually test positive if you happen to acquire it just before boarding. They're, They're trying to tighten the window as much as they can, but I don't think it's perfect. And I'd also note too, Dave, that my experience with the negative test results was thinking to myself as I provided them at the border in Tokyo, like, do these people, do they have any idea what they're looking for on this? It's a piece of paper that mm-hmm. was produced by a by a private lab that I paid a lot of money to, to produce it quickly. But it seems like the kind of thing that you could get through any number of means if you were in a pinch. So I guess what I'm trying to get at there is it doesn't surprise me that some people would slip through the net. There have been a few positive tests. The hope is that those can be isolated. I mean, you're talking about tens of thousands of visitors here. So a handful of positives is not necessarily a crisis. But the problem will be if somebody who is a big name athlete or a significant team all of a sudden has COVID positive cases that force either the athlete or the team or the event to be in jeopardy. And one of the things about the Olympics is they're really hard to reschedule. I mean, mm-hmm. it's everything is kind of scheduled within the inch, an inch of its life because there's so many things going on. There's not much in the way of wiggle room. You know, we saw in various sports bubbles, teams that, you know, basically didn't play for 10 days while they cleared COVID cases. And then they'd play seven times in 12 days to catch up. There's just no way to do things like that here. And there's also the fact that athletes are supposed to leave almost as soon as their event is over. So many of them are arriving a few days before the event and already have tickets booked to leave two days after their event. And so if they don't perform on schedule, it creates this whole other follow-on problem. So from a logistical standpoint, a major number of COVID cases or even a significant one in a significant event would be the obvious scenario that the organizers are desperately hoping to avoid. So what happens if there is an increase in cases among athletes, either in general or tied to a specific event? And where is the bar set for organizers for what is a significant increase in cases? Like, could a whole event just get canceled or could the whole thing get canceled? (laughs) You know, this is not something they have wanted to acknowledge ahead of time. And we saw that with any other pro sport, right? Nobody really wants to put a number on what the doomsday scenario is because they always want to give themselves the wiggle room to try to scramble and solve the problem and push the limits as far as they can. Mm -hmm. So we don't know what the issue would be, whether they would cancel a singular event 
would they go so far as to canceling the entire games? I can say this, they haven't ruled it out. You know, somebody was asked about it yesterday and he kind of gave the pat answer of, well, we of course will monitor and we will make decisions as going forward and, you know, kind of gave the stock answer, which got turned into top official doesn't rule out canceling games on eve of opening ceremony. (laughs) But he didn't really say like they have any intention of doing it. He just acknowledged that all cards remain on the table for that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So we, I think we just have to see as it goes forward. I can't imagine that they'd even want to cancel a specific event only because that's so unfair to the other athletes in that particular event. Yeah. But look, like it depends what happens, I guess is how I would describe it. And I would be very surprised if we've seen the last of the COVID positive cases amongst athletes. But by the same acknowledgement, I'm I'm not convinced that we'll necessarily have a big outbreak or something that they can't deal with. Well, I'll just mention one other thing, Dave, which is that normally in a normal Olympics, all the athletes come in ahead of time. They spend their time here before the games. Often they train in and around the host venues. Mm -hmm. And then when their competition is over, they stick around. They watch other stuff. They go to the closing ceremony. Everybody remembers the Scott Moore pictures from Korea when he was having beers at the hockey game. (laughs) Yeah. This time, like you are coming in shortly before your event and you are leaving shortly after it's over. So that is to say... There could be athletes arriving with positive cases like through the whole of the games. Mm-hmm. It's not a situation where they're all arriving now. So we're seeing this early spike in positive cases because they're all getting tested on intake. That's going to continue. So I guess the hope would be that the few positive results we've seen so far is enough of a alarm to athletes who are coming in the coming days and weeks to say, you know, make sure you are negative, get tested frequently limit your contacts, be really careful, and that'll solve that problem. But but we have to see as it rolls out uh, how many are able to adhere to that. Hosting an Olympic Games, whether summer or winter, is a huge undertaking. And over the last few Olympiads, we've seen the debate and the discussion of, is this whole thing worth it? You know, the cost to host these games, the cost to build the venues, and then you see in some countries the venues, they start to crumble. They, they aren't cared for. They aren't meant to be permanent fixtures like, you know, some Canadian Olympic venues are. You know, right. you look at places like Calgary that has, you know, a legacy of the Olympic Games in that city. Mm-hmm. What challenges of hosting the event are compounded by this whole COVID thing? Like, what does it mean to host the Olympics now? And has COVID just kind of added one knock against hosting Olympics in the future? These games in particular are the absolute worst case scenario for a host country in that all those potential problems you alluded to with venues that get built for a specific purpose, but then there's no real use for that place beyond when the games leave town, the inevitable cost overruns. I mean, nobody knows entirely what the cost of these games are, but as with them all, you know, they were given a budget of X billion dollars and it's two or three or four times higher than that when the final bill will come in. So that's all money that's lost to the Japanese public and taxpayers. Mm -hmm. But then you add on top of the fact that they will get no foreign tourism revenue because there are no fans here from anywhere around the world and they won't get domestic revenue because the Japanese public is no longer going to be at these games. So Mm -hmm. 
the games themselves will have a very different feel, obviously, because there won't be anybody in the stands. And I think because of the restrictions on people like me covering it, you're going to get a lot less of the stories about Japan as a whole and the kind of stuff that is usually part and parcel of an Olympic coverage, which is pieces about the country and different things that are going on and tourism sites. And, you know, when I was in Korea for the Pyeongchang Olympics, in the days before the games, they were setting up tours like left, right and center. You could go to, you know, go see this temple and go to the demilitarized zone and try to get the visiting media out into the country as much as they could Mm -hmm. to relay those stories back. There's like zero of that going on here. They don't even want us to leave our hotel rooms for three days. So that part is also not happening. So yeah, I think this is a, a worst case scenario. And I think if you're a country that's bidding for an Olympics, Obviously, we all hope this pandemic is a once in a lifetime kind of thing. Yeah. But it definitely goes to show you that there are no guarantees that once you commit to hosting this thing, that you'll end up getting any of the benefit that you hoped out of it. So I kind of thought for quite some time that the Olympics should move to some sort of system where there is either one permanent place that it is held or rotating two or three places. So you get away from this whole idea of cities bidding for it and blowing their brains out on spending and then wondering what to do with it all when the games leave town. I just think that they got too big and they've gotten too unwieldy and, you know, they're always trying to add new sports, but, but that only increases the requirements on the host city. So this is kind of underlined that uh, and put a exclamation mark on it. And then a couple more exclamation marks on it, because I don't imagine at the end of this, even if the games get sort of get pulled off and there's lots of great stories as there often is, there's going to be a real legacy of regret with these games and certainly a legacy of debt and money that they're not going to make back. So the best case scenario for Tokyo and Japan on this is that they're able to host them and not have a major crisis envelop them. But even that is a pretty low bar. I imagine that the world will be watching this very closely. And, you know, other than the athletes themselves will be paying attention to how things go amid a global pandemic. Scott, thanks for your time. Okay. Anytime, Dave. Have a good one. 10.3 is produced by Sean Knox, theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest Scott Stinson. More from him and all our Olympic coverage is available at nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.